Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Last Sunday, we, we actually spent the entire morning looking at the first five verses of chapter 14. And uh, basically that, if you've read chapter 14 before, before this is the 144,000 Jewish men that we met or we were introduced to in Revelation chapter 7. They were sealed at the beginning of the tribulation and they were preserved through the tribulation because of chapter 14, uh, they're, they're exiting the tribulation victorious, standing with Jesus on Mount Zion. And while they were going through the entire tribulation, they were protected, divinely protected, preserved, but they were also fruitful because we know that there's a great harvest of souls that will occur during the, the tribulation. And so they exit the tribulation victorious at the, those first five verses of chapter uh, 14. And they, they're basically going to be entering into the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth uh, from Jerusalem, when he reigns in Jerusalem. And so we were talking about that, looked at the application for us today. Um, and uh, so that's where we left off. So we're at verse 6 now of chapter 14. John writes, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth and to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the seas and the springs of water. So, you know, you have to look in the Greek. What is this about this angel? Well, it's, it's literally an angel, and I believe it is, uh, flying there in the midst of heaven. I think it's going to be in the second half of the tribulation, which is we call the Great Tribulation, the second three and a half years of the tribulation. But what's interesting, this angel is flying in sight and hearing of all the inhabitants on the earth. And you go, man, that seems really, really strange. Well, Listen, as we've been going through talking about the tribulation, nothing is normal. Nothing is normal during the tribulation. So uh, it's, it's, everything is going to be just, you know, crazy going on there. Of course, we know crazy in a sense, but God's in control, so it's not really that crazy. But as far as from the world's perspective, phenomena taking place, you know, it's just, it's wild. So here we have the, this angel flying around, across the atmosphere, proclaiming, the gospel, and the Bible says here, the everlasting gospel. And you know what the gospel is? Everlasting. What's interesting, you know, okay, so what is the tribulation? The tribulation is the period of time where God is pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. But isn't it interesting that even in the midst of his judgment, even in the midst of his wrath, he's still giving an opportunity for those who dwell on the earth to hear the gospel. To be preached. And of course, you know, Christians at that time, if anyone comes to faith during the tribulation, the church will be raptured by then. But anyone that comes to faith during the tribulation, it's going to be dangerous. And we'll be talking about that a little bit more. But, but you know, angels can't get killed. And they're flying around in heaven. So what's the Antichrist going to do? There's nothing he can do. Because remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that eventually God allows him to overpower and to kill the two witnesses. 
And so at this point now in angels, they, they, Antichrist can't do anything about an angel. Okay, so, um, so, the, so this angel is proclaiming the gospel. And you say, well, you know, when I read what he's saying, fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs. That's not exactly the gospel that I've heard. I mean, where's the love of Jesus there? Where's the gospel of grace? Well, I've got news for you. There's only really one gospel, okay? Paul says this in Galatians 1 verse 8. But even if we are an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. So there's only one gospel. And remember that during the tribulation, uh, this is a generation that has rejected the love of Jesus Christ. They've rejected the message of grace. And so this message is still the gospel, but it's more somber, of course. It's more severe and urgent. Why? Because God's day of judgment is swiftly approaching. In fact, it is here. That's the message. God's judgment is here. It has come. And so the angels crying out and tells the, the inhabitants of the earth to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. That's an interesting aspect of the message. You know, the lie of evolution right now, it's, I remember growing up, evolution, even in the textbooks, when I was growing up, they taught it, but you would read it, it says the theory of evolution. And now it's no longer a theory, right? Now it's, it's, it's. The fact, basically. That's the way you read the kids' textbooks are today. It's no longer a theory. Um, and so uh, as we go into this period of time, the lie of evolution is going to be that much more stronger, that much more greater. And we know the scripture tells that creation is groaning and experiencing labor pains during the tribulation. What's interesting to me is that the angel mentions the creation of the sea and the springs of water in particular. But as I was thinking about it, it, it really makes sense. Because if you think about it, during the tribulation, in Revelation chapter 8, we read that a third of the sea is going to become blood. Also, a third of the rivers and the springs of water will become bitter. They'll be poisoned. You can't drink it. In Revelation 18, or excuse me, 11, remember the two witnesses, they had power to withhold the rain during their ministry which is probably three and a half years or roughly of that time period, that they have the power to withhold the rain. So there's, there's no rain in the days of their prophecy. And the, it says that they have power over waters to turn them to blood. Not only that, but we also know that there's going to be great hailstorms during the tribulation, but no mention of rain, just hailstorms. And finally, and we haven't got there yet, but in Revelation 16, the waters of the Euphrates is going to dry up. So if you take all that all that into one perspective, there's not going to be much water on the planet during the tribulation. It's going to be very scarce during the tribulation. People are literally going to be thirsty for clean water during the tribulation. Now, why does a large portion of God's judgment uh, involve water during the great tribulation? I just just think, what's the significance? And this is my theory, okay? This isn't the saith the Lord. This is my theory. In John chapter 7, 37, remember when Jesus went to the temple? It said, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And if you think about it, the people during, that are alive during the tribulation, they've rejected the living water. They've rejected Jesus Christ. 
and fresh, life-sustaining water is going to be rare to those during the Great Tribulation. And that's why I think he says, Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. You know, the coffee, I've got a cup of coffee right here on my pulpit. You know, we've got hot water, got cold water in the back. We take water, clean water for granted here in the United States and a lot of other places in the world. That's not, it's not common. It's, it's, in fact, you know, there's a lot of pollution and, and we don't, most of the world doesn't have the clean drinking water like we do. Um, you know, the whole hydraulic cycle, you know, that's evaporation, condensation, all that, you know, the whole cycle of, of creation regarding uh, water on this planet, it's really one portion of what we call God's common grace. Because the Bible says that he sends rain on the just and on the unjust alike. It's a common grace that God is just, we take it for granted, but it's, it's really God's blessing to us here on, this, on, on earth. Well, during that tribulation, that's going to be removed in large part from the world. And so when we get to the end of Revelation, chapter 21 says this, verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And chapter 22, verse 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Now, we're talking spiritual things, right? But I think the, the very fact that they're literally going to not have water, it's going to be pointing them to Jesus in a sense. Again, that's Pastor Don's theory. Let's continue on here. Verse 8. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So now after this one angel has been flying around preaching the everlasting gospel, now this other angel is proclaiming his message flying through mid-heaven, we assume as well. Now, ancient Babylon, that's been Satan's headquarters pretty much since, you know, the history of mankind. Uh, it was established by Nimrod in, way back in the book of Genesis, we read about it. His wife, Semiramis, claimed to be deity. She claimed to be a god. And from ancient Babylon, the idolatrous worship of Semiramis, she was known as the queen of heaven, or that's what she was worshipped as. It, all that... All that false religion. In fact, I would say probably uh, Babylon is the source for pretty much all false religion that even exists to this day. It all has its roots back in ancient Babylon. And so this angel is crying out, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And notice he says it's fallen. That means it's already fallen, right? I mean, it's, 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 not, it's going to fall. It's not his message. It's fallen. And yet we know at this point it hasn't fallen yet. That the destruction of Babylon won't occur until chapter 17, which is the destruction of spiritual Babylon, and chapter 18, which is the destruction of commercial Babylon. But this angel is spoke, speaking as if it's already occurred. Why? Well, because from God's perspective, it's as good as done. It's as good as done. The repetition of the word fallen. Well, we learned from Joseph in the book of Genesis, when God repeats something twice, it means two things. It means, first of all, it's established by God. It's going to happen. And secondly, God will shortly bring it to pass. 
So this is that message that the angel is, is bringing. And notice it's called Babylon is Babylon has fallen, that great city. Now, I believe that there's going to be a literally a city called Babylon that's going to be destroyed at the end of the Great Tribulation. Now, some people think today it's speaking of Rome. Um, others think it is a literal city called Babylon, uh, not, the, not the same location as the ancient Babylon, which is in Iraq right now. Although, remember Saddam Hussein? He tried to, he tried to resurrect Babylon, but uh, I don't think he got very far when he got deposed. Um, but I do believe that there will be a literal city um, that will be this Babylon, that will be built during the tribulation. That proclamation against Babylon, by the way, was prophesied also by Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 51, verse 7, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. Now we're going to deal a lot more with the destruction of Babylon when we get to chapter 17 and chapter 18, so I don't want to focus a lot of time on that this morning. But again, just remember the first angel was proclaiming uh, to the, the gospel, the everlasting, everlasting gospel to the inhabitants of the earth at this time. This second angel is sent by God to warn the inhabitants of the earth of this impending destruction of Babylon. Again, it's another opportunity for them to repent. No one's going no to stand before God on judgment day, especially during the tribulation, well, in our day too, but say, I never knew. I never, I didn't know. They'll know. There's going to be an angel speaking it, proclaiming this to everybody and in their own languages too. So this angel is sent by God to warn the inhabitants of the earth to turn away from spiritual idolatry and to turn away from the idolatry of materialism. Again, we'll get to that when we get to chapter 17 and chapter 18. Verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his, of his name. The first angel's message was fear God, right? Don't fear man. In particular, don't fear the Antichrist. Fear God. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body, uh, excuse me, both soul and body in hell. So the first angel's message is fear God. The second mess or the second aspect of his message is to give glory to God and worship the God uh, and, and worship him as opposed to worshiping the Antichrist. Because you see, if you look at verse 9 there, it clearly links uh, worshiping the beast and his image with taking the mark of the beast. Nobody during that time is going to be like unaware of the fact that, oh, I got this mark. I didn't know it was the mark of the beast. I, if I had known, I wouldn't have done it. No, they're going to know. It's going to be a conscious choice of theirs to accept that mark as a form of worship to the Antichrist during that time. And in God's view, there's no separation between taking the mark and worshiping him. 
This angel clearly warns the inhabitants of the earth not to take the mark of the beast. You know, a lot of people are going to feel pressured or maybe they're fearful because of the, the political power and the fact that they won't be able to buy or sell without this mark. And, and, and uh, you know, if you don't take that mark, you're going to be getting beheaded for it, which is fascinating to me. I was listening to a message from probably the 70s and some about prophecy, and they were talking about the Antichrist. And they said, isn't that strange? The Bible talks about beheading. And uh, they said, you know, there was this incident that occurred somewhere in a Muslim country where someone got beheaded. And, uh, and, you know, that was in the 70s they were talking about. Think about it now. Today we go, that's it's common, right? There's a lot of people being beheaded today. So it's like it's not at all strange for us to, to see that in Scripture here. But people are going to be afraid of receiving or afraid of the Antichrist. This angel is warning them, don't take the mark of the beast. Because if you do, there's going to be a far greater consequence than not being able to buy or sell or, or being beheaded for not taking it. The consequence for taking the mark and worshiping the beast will be eternal damnation in the lake of fire. That's a lot more serious. The angel warns them. He says, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, verse 10, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Poured out full strength. In other words, it's not mixed. You see, because right now God's judgment is mixed with mercy. We see it throughout scriptures. It's, his judgment is always not full strength. It's mixed with mercy. Um, but at this point, it's not going to be. You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was the night that he was betrayed before he was crucified. Remember, he was praying before the Lord. And he was crying out. And he says, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That cup that he was speaking about was the cup of God's wrath poured out on, a holy God poured out on sin. And Jesus took that cup and drank it full strength. It was full strength for you and for me when he was crucified. And he drank that cup so that you and I would never have to drink that cup of God's wrath. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He took that cup so we wouldn't have to. When Jesus was on the cross, before he died, remember he cried out saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried that out on the cross so that you would never have to cry that out because we are not forsaken because of the love of Christ for us. Hebrews 13, verse 5, he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But you see, he took that cup full strength. He drank it for you and I. We should have drank it, but he did. He was forsaken so that you and I would never be forsaken. But the inhabitants of the earth have rejected that. They've rejected and so as a result of rejecting Christ's salvation, they're going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath full strength themselves. It's a choice that they make. It says, He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. 
There's a lot of things that we can learn about hell, or as we would call it, the lake of fire, which is the, probably the, the most technical term for Gehenna, the lake of fire. We can learn some several, uh, some important facts about hell. The first is that hell is literal. You know, hell is mentioned 13 times in the New Testament. 11 times it's Jesus who's speaking about hell or he's teaching about it. So hell is literal. Hell is also physical. It's the lake of fire is going to be a physical place where those who willfully reject Christ, uh, they're going to be resurrected, but they're going to be resurrected to a physical torment in hell. And we read that in Revelation chapter 20. We'll talk about that when we get there. So hell is literal. It's physical. And I, I, I don't know, if, I just said it's cognitive. And I'm not the most brilliant person, but I, was, I thought, what word applies to this? And cognitive was what I thought of. Um, you guys that are scholars are probably like, what in the world is he saying? Here's my point. In the lake of fire, there's going to be an awareness, an awareness of your surroundings People are going to understand why they are there. They're going to know why. There's a, there's a false teaching out there right now called annihilation. Um, it's where they, people believe that after a person dies, their souls just cease to exist. Pff, they're gone. That's it. I mean, that doesn't sound like that bad of a punishment, <laughs> to be honest with you, would it? If, if that was true. If that were the case, eternal damnation wouldn't seem that bad if you just, pff, you're no longer there anymore. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And that's very interesting. Because earlier in Scripture, Jesus referred to the lake of fire as outer darkness. And he also referred to the lake of fire as the blackness or excuse me, Jude refers to it as the blackness of darkness forever. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1.9 said, the wicked would be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And yet here it says they'll be tormented in the presence of the angels and in the presence of the Lamb. What's, what's going on here? I do believe that there's going to be a separation in the lake of fire. You know, a lot of people that are, they kind of mock the whole concept of hell. They go, yeah, I want to, I want to go to hell because I'm going to party with my friends. My friends are going to be there, you know. Um, and, uh, but that's not true. I believe the, teach, the Bible teaches there's going to be complete isolation for each individual. And yet, in some way, the holy angels and Jesus are going to observe the punishment of the wicked. I, I, I don't understand it fully. But I believe on the flip side of that, that in some way the wicked are going to have this continual cognitive reality of why they're being punished as they see the Lamb and the holy angels. John Gill is a commentator from many years ago. He wrote this. He said, The sight of their power and glory will increase the torment of the sufferers. People are going to know why they're there. So the lake of fire is literal. It's physical, it's cognitive in the sense of people have an understanding why they're there. And lastly, it's eternal. And this is probably the most important point. You know, we know from scriptures that God exists outside of space and time. You and I, were confined to space and time. 
my father passed away uh, a number of years ago. And, and I remember thinking, well, he had a relationship with the Lord. And I remember thinking, I wonder what it's going to seem like for him in eternity before I come to see him, you know, for, for me, I mean, my dad was about 35, I think 35 years older than me. So I thought, you know, if I live as long as he does, I won't see him for another 35 years, maybe more, or maybe a little bit less, who knows. So for me, there's going to be this space of time, but, but I wonder in in heaven, is there going to be a space of time? If he just, you know, he breathed his last breath, open up his eyes, there's Jesus. He's in the presence of the Lord as the scripture teaches and then, boom, they're on there, you know, and everybody's there. You know, I, that's my, in my understanding. I thought that once a person goes to heaven, there's no concept of time because you're outside of space and time at that point. And yet, remember in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, it says that when he opened the seventh seal that there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Like, hmm, how, did they, how do they know a half an hour is expired in heaven? And here it says the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. And so as I was reading these chapters, I was starting to kind of challenge my, my understanding of, of what space and time is going to be like in heaven. And I, I, at this point, I don't really know, okay? I, I'm, I don't, I'm not that smart. But I think one thing is irrefutable, and this is important. Punishment in the lake of fire is forever. There's another false teaching out there called universalism. It's the false teaching that every human soul will ultimately be reconciled to God. In other words, he might punish people in the lake of fire for like a thousand years, and then he lets them go to heaven. He gives them an opportunity to receive Christ or whatever. That's a lie from the, from the pit of hell. That's, a, that's an outright lie to deceive people into not having to make a choice now, whether to receive or reject Christ. They say people will have an opportunity to be reconciled to God post-mortem. In other words, after they die. But here it says the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Literally, that means to the ages of ages. That is the strongest Greek definition of eternity that the Greek language has. From the ages to ages. They have no rest day or night. You know, when I was uh, a number of years ago, or a couple years ago anyways, I was uh, cutting some melon for my wife, and I put my hand on the wrong end of my hand on a knife, and I slid my hand down the blade, had a big gash in my, right, in the, right in the palm of my hand. So I was like, okay, we got to go to the doctor and get stitches. So I, so I went to uh, Olmstead Medical, uh, and in, in the nurse's office, the nurse said, I'll do that for you. So she started giving me those shots to numb it. You know, the shots are probably, they seem like it's the worst the worst pain is getting those Novocaine shots. Anyway, so she gave me a shot. I'm like, oh, it hurts so bad. And, and then she goes, okay. And then she goes, you know, you probably won't feel anything. You should be, it should be getting numb now. And so she started sticking. I go, oh, I'm feeling it. And she said, oh, well, then I'll give you another shot. I'm like, oh, great. So then she gave me another shot. And she goes, well, now it should be good. She started sticking the needle out, and I was feeling everything. I, I, my thumb was numb. <laughs> everything else was, I had it all sense. So she goes, oh. So I'm sorry, I'll give you another shot. I said, no, 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 <laughs> I've had enough shots, just do the stitches. And so she gave me stitches, and I literally felt everything, the needle going in, the needle coming out, the threads going through. I mean, I felt everything, and it was horrendous. But you know, it ended. It ended, and when, when she was done, it was like, I can rest. It's like, okay, that pain, I could endure that pain, now I'm okay. When people go to hell, when they're in the lake of fire, 
There's no rest from it. It's continual. It's continual physical punishment for rejecting Christ. There's going to be no rest from their suffering and torment. And if you think about it, if there's no sense of time, then you're always in the moment, right? You're always, and that that would be punishment in a sense. But if there is a sense of day and night in, in or times, in other words, in the lake of fire, then there's also going to be an awareness of how long they've been there and how long they're going to be there, which is going to be forever. What a torment that is. And you might be thinking, how could a loving God send someone to hell for eternity simply for not believing in Jesus Christ? What kind of a loving God would do that? Well, first of all, the lake of fire was never intended for mankind. It was originally created for Satan, uh, for the devil and his angels. And if you say, you know, how could a loving God send someone to hell? There's a couple things you don't understand. First of all, you don't understand the holiness of God. Secondly, you don't understand the wickedness of sin. As we know from scriptures, God is holy and God is righteous. And unholiness and unrighteousness has to be addressed for God to be true to his holiness, to his holy nature as a just God. It has to be dealt with. But we also know from scriptures that God is love. And that's why he sent his son, right? Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, to drink the cup of God's holy wrath against sin so that men and women do not have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Even during uh, the Great Tribulation, and it's the second half of the Tribulation, I think, what we're reading about right now, he is sending angels to proclaim the everlasting gospel, still giving people an opportunity to repent. But you see, people make a de facto choice to be sent there by rejecting the only other option that God offers, and that's salvation. They don't want it. So there's a reason why I think punishment in the lake of fire is eternal. And it's this. An imperfect sacrifice can never satisfy a perfect requirement. You think about it in the Old Testament, right? The lambs, every, every day they had to sacrifice an animal. Every day. Because those sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were imperfect. They just covered over sin. They never fully satisfied God's righteous requirements. Here's another picture in the New Testament. Jesus told this parable in Matthew 18 about the servant, the servant that owed his master $10,000. And of course, this is a parable about forgiving others. But I think there's something interesting in there. The servant owed the master, and you know the story, 10,000 talents. And so he came to the master. The master was going to throw him in jail, sell his wife and kids and everything. And he asked for mercy. And Jesus said the master had compassion on him. And his debt was forgiven him. Then that same servant went out and he found a fellow servant that owed him 100 denarii, which is like nothing in comparison to what he had owed the master. And that fellow servant asked him for mercy, but he wouldn't forgive his debt and had him thrown in prison. Again, you guys know that story. Well, word came back to the master about this servant that was ungrateful and treated this other servant this way. And so the master threw that wicked servant into jail and says he delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Now, jails and nowadays, I guess you can get a, earn an income, right? Some kind of a little bit of an income in jail. I don't think it was that way in the Old Testament. When you went to jail, you were in jail. So think about this. That servant 
that wicked servant was going to be in that jail until he could pay back 10,000 talents to the master. How would he ever pay it back? He couldn't. It was impossible for him to. So he was going to be in there forever. See, because of our sin nature, man will never be able to satisfy the penalty of sin. That's why Jesus had to come as fully God and fully man. Because he was the perfect sacrifice to satisfy a perfect requirement of a holy God. Hebrews 7, 26 and 27 says this, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He satisfied that perfect requirement. And so when someone rejects Christ's substitutionary death for them on the cross, just like in that parable of the wicked servant, they're going to be sent to the lake of fire until they can satisfy God's perfect requirement. It'll never happen because they're imperfect. That's why hell is forever. Verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I think John is interjecting this comment to the 144,000 uh, and the rest of those tribulation saints that are going to come to faith in Christ during the great tribulation. The message is patient endurance and faith in Christ. It's going to be rewarded. And it is for us today too. But I think this is directly applying or spoken to those tribulation saints. Verse 13, <clears throat> then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. I think this could be said of any generation of believers in Jesus Christ, right? That if you die in the Lord, you're blessed and you're going to rest from your labor and your works will follow you. I think it's true for every generation of believers. But I think... In context, verse 13 is specifically addressed to those saints that are going to be alive during the Great Tribulation. With the exception of the 144,000, remember they were miraculously preserved through the Tribulation. The majority of these Tribulation saints are going to be martyred for their faith during the Tribulation. And I think this is, again, speaking about the Great Tribulation, the second half of the Tribulation, and that's an interesting thing too because if the messages of those angels if they're not flying around till the second half of the great tribulation uh, uh, and if these two verses 12 and 13 occur during the half or they're, they're applying to the second half of the tribulation and I believe it does notice that there's no mention of them being raptured just death why? because some people believe in a, a, a mid-rapture or a mid-tribulation rapture a pre-wrath rapture, I think is what they call it. There's no mention of rapture here, just death. Why? Because the church has already been raptured prior to the beginning of the tribulation. What a contrast to those who are cast into the lake of fire. There's no rest from their torments, but those who die in the Lord during the tribulation are blessed because they're going to enter into rest from their labors. That's another thing that's kind of jumped out at me. Their labors. 
Because if you think about it, if, if you were in the situation where, there, where you're going to try to just hole up somewhere and just ride out those seven years, right? Because you're going to know, you know, this, whenever you come to faith in the Christ during the Great Tribulation, you can go to a Bible and you can figure out to the day when Christ is going to, when Judgment Day is coming. Because you know, it's, it's within seven years. You know that for a fact. So why not just hunker down and just, you know, ride it out, you know, go in a cave somewhere and, and hope that, you know, you can survive those seven years. But here it says they're going to rest from their labors. So I get the impression that like the 144,000 we talked about last week, these people are going to be laboring for the Lord with full abandon because they know that Christ is returning that much sooner. They're going to be, they're going to be sharing the gospel with anyone they can, even knowing that it's going to cost them their lives. And it probably will fascinating verse 14 then i looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle and another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe so he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped Notice it says, one like the Son of Man. I, I think it's Jesus, okay? It, it looks like Jesus. I think it's Jesus. But some people have a problem with that because they say, well, wait a minute. If that's Jesus, what is he taking a command from an angel for? I mean, you know, it's like, what's going on here? Well, notice it didn't say that the angel commanded one like the Son of Man to throw in his, sharp, throw in his sickle. It says the angel is crying out. He's crying out to Jesus. He's not commanding him. This, is, this word, is, it's, it gives you a sense of desperation. It's a cry of desperation for Jesus to thrust in his sickle. But even so, even if it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, this angel is coming out of the temple. That's where God the Father is. And so he's coming out from the presence of the Father with this message to Jesus the Son. And God has, handed, has given the judgment of, of the earth to his Son, so the message, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. That word ripe, it means to become dry or withered. And that can kind of give us a little bit of a false understanding necessarily. But what it means, it's, it's, it's a picture of a fruit or a vegetable that has become so ripe that it's begun to dry up and wither. And at this point, it's beyond salvaging. It's overripe. I don't know about you, but, you know, we, we buy fruit. I love fruit. Uh, but every once in a while, I'll get into this phase where I'm, I'll just eat fruit regularly. And then after a while, it's like I, I neglect my fruit. <laughs> and I don't eat it every, you know. And then after a while, I'm like, oh, man. Yeah, those, that's that, the strawberries or whatever. They've been in there for a while. The oranges, I, I got to eat them. And you go and you pull out the drawer and it's liquidy. And it's like, you know, it's like, ugh. There's no salvaging at that point. You know, it's beyond. You can't even cut anything off. It's like, get it out of here, you know. And, and you throw it out. That's the sense here. It's something that is beyond ripe. It's rotten. Notice God's timing for judgment. He is in his patience, in his mercy, in his long-suffering and grace. He waits until he knows people are beyond salvaging. That's when his judgment occurs. He's not going to judge them before that time. That should speak volumes to you and I. Because we should be careful not to pass judgment on people before the time. It's an easy thing to do. Give up on people. No hope for them. God doesn't. He waits till people are beyond salvaging before he judges them. 
Praise God that he didn't do that with you or with me. Verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Notice that he came out of, from the altar and had power over fire. This seems to be, in my estimation, seems to be a response to the prayers of the saints, like we saw in chapter 8. That harvesting judgment of verse 16, I think it's a picture or it can be pictured in the separation of the wheat and tares that Jesus told that, that, that parable in Matthew 13. This harvest judgment, I think, specifically pictures the battle of Armageddon in chapter 19. We'll get to that in chapter 19. So he says, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. It's a different definition for ripe there. Fully ripe, it means to flourish or to be fully ripe. <laughs> it's the picture of a grape that is so ripe, it's so ready, it's about to burst. It's, I mean, you just touch it and it's, just, it's that ripe. I mean, it's, it's just at the perfect time. It's fully ready. Ready for what? Ready to be gathered and thrown into the wine press to be trodden underfoot. Think about a, a, piece, a grape that is that ripe. I mean, there's no, there's no green to it or at all. It's, it's just perfectly ripe. Think what happens when you step on a grape like that. Psh, juice goes everywhere, right? Juice gushes everywhere. Look at verse 19. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Notice it says that the winepress was trampled outside the city. The city. Whenever you read the city in, in Revelation, speaking of Jerusalem. Whenever you read of that city, it's speaking of Babylon. But here, the city is Jerusalem. The winepress was trampled outside the city. You know what? Jesus bore God's wrath for sin outside the city as well. Hebrews 13, 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So these people that reject Christ, they're going to suffer outside the city as well. It says that the blood reached up to the horse's bridles. Now, I'm not an equestrian kind of guy, but I guess that's about four to six feet, basically, a bridle on a horse, roughly. Um, what about furlongs? 1,600 furlongs is about 180 to 200 miles. So if you take this scripture literally, there's, that means that there's a literal river of blood 180 to 200 miles long, four to six feet deep. That much blood? Well, we know that there's going to be great armies gathered there in the plains of Megiddo to come up against. They're going to be fighting each other until Jesus returns. Then they're going to, all, they're all going to start fighting the Lord or trying to fight the Lord. Um, lots of men, lots of animals. But are there enough bodies of men and animals to produce that much blood? And I'll be honest with you, I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe John would know, but <laughs> he'd do a study. I don't know. It'd be interesting. John's a medical student, so he would probably know. But <laughs> anyways, there's two possibilities. 
the blood is four to six feet deep in the wadis for 180 miles. In other words, the low spots or the gullies or the valleys there, that's possible. Another possibility is the blood is splattered onto the horses as high as the bridles for 180 miles. Another possibility. I don't really know. We won't be there, so I'm not worried about it, right? Um, But you know, battlefields... If you see ever see pictures, and hopefully, and I don't know if any of you experienced battle, but the battlefields, they've got streams of blood, puddles, pools of blood. Uh, so this isn't far-fetched. What's interesting to me, though, Alfred Edersheim, or Edersheim, I should say, he wrote a book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. I, I love reading it. And uh, he speaks about the time when Jesus crossed the Kidron Brook, um, when he was heading into the Garden of Gethsemane, on the eve of his crucifixion, that was when the Passover was occurring. And there's millions of, of pilgrims coming to Jerusalem to offer up a lamb for a sacrifice for sin. Millions of people. And so there's hundreds of thousands of lambs being sacrificed during that time. And he said that was occurring while, you know, before Jesus' crucifixion. And and so where that brook Kidron, it actually, the, the blood from the temple where they would sacrifice those lambs would drain into the brook Kidron and flow through the brook. And he says that night when Jesus was crossing the brook, it would have been black with the blood, because at nighttime you wouldn't have seen the red, it would have been black with the blood of the animals, and Jesus stepped over that. What a picture. Jesus took that on for us and for people, and, and now their blood's going to be spilled because they're rejecting Christ. Because they're rejecting what his sacrifice for them. They've rejected Christ's sacrifice for blood that was shed for them. Now their blood is going to be shed instead. Interesting too, Megiddo, which is where Armageddon is going to take place, the plains of Megiddo, to Basra, which is in Jordan, is about 1,600 furlongs or about 170, 200 miles. That's interesting because of Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 4. This is a prophecy. It says, who is this who comes from Edom? Edom is another word for Jordan, and that's where Basra is, Jordan. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And then the, the response is, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Then the question, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? The answer I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I think this is a picture that we're seeing here, uh, both in, in Revelation 14 and in Isaiah 63. I think it's speaking of the same event. Jordan, we know, as we were studying earlier, uh, specifically Petra, a lot of people believe that the the, the remnant of surviving Jews during the second half of the tribulation, they're going to flee to Petra, which is in Jordan. So it's it's interesting when you start looking at this. Does that mean that Jesus is going to go there where they're where they're at and bring them with him as as we come? You know, with I I, I don't know, but interesting. But that would be another interesting study for you students that like prophecy to, to to look into that. But I have a few concluding thoughts because I'm not going to go. I'm not going to speculate. Um, and this is it. If you take nothing from what we've talked about. 
It's funny. Sometimes I'll give a, an illustration, and I'm the same way. When I've heard people give an illustration, that's what sticks. Well, I remember they got cut with a knife, you know. It's, a, it's like, if, I hope you don't remember that. I hope you remember this. Hell is a real place. It's a real place. The lake of fire is an everlasting punishment. You know, and you know, I'm look. There's nobody here smiling right now, by the way, as I'm looking across here. No, well, not enough. Some people are starting to smile now, but everybody's like, "Oh, wow, so somber." And it is somber. It is serious. But you know, Jesus taught the most on hell of anybody. The only other person that followed him that taught as much, or not as much, but taught a lot, was John, the apostle of love, teaching about hell. Because it's important. Because it is real and it is everlasting. And Jesus was forsaken by God on the cross so that you and I would never be forsaken. And he drank that cup of God's wrath uh, on sin so that you and I would never have to. Amen? Let's stand. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Your worship team, you can come on up if you want. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning. And um, Lord, I, I, I pray that if nothing else, um, Lord, there's the, the seriousness of what's awaiting those maybe family members or neighbors or people that we know, co-workers that, that they'll be facing if they reject your free offer of salvation, Lord, that we might have that much more of a sense of urgency to share the gospel. Because, Lord, those tribulation saints, they know that you'll be returning some, sometime within that seven years, but we don't know when the rapture of the church will be, Lord. It could come today. And so, Lord, may we be like those saints being fruitful laboring for you lord may we may we spend the rest of our days occupying lord reaching others for the kingdom praying for people sharing the love of christ with others lord instill in us i pray lord a a heart and a burden for the lost around us may we be your instruments in this in this wicked age lord god i pray so i thank you for your word this morning lord i thank you for uh, these saints here in jesus name Amen.